justliberty.org It's good for you and it's good for me Justliberty.org Justliberty.org Hi, this is Amanda Marzullo. In Comal County, District Judge Jack Robeson urged jurors to find a defendant not guilty of sex trafficking because God told him she was innocent. He said he knew it violated the canons of judicial ethics, but declared, when God tells me I got to do something, I got to do it. The State Commission on Judicial Conduct is investigating. So Scott, what do you think about this heavenly intervention into this Comal County trial? I have many, many questions. First, I want to know more about precisely how God <laughs> told him to seek a not guilty verdict. Are we talking about a burning bush situation? Is he Joan of Arc hearing unseen voices while everyone else is oblivious in the courtroom? Or maybe this is like St. Francis where he speaks with animals and a prosecution comfort dog gave him this information at some point during the trial. And, and what does God's voice sound like? Is he a basso, a baritone, a tenor? And perhaps most importantly, does he speak with a Texas accent? <laughs> I'm hoping the Judicial Conduct Commission looks into all these questions because this is sort of a once-in-a-lifetime opportunity, really, to, 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 to get some first-hand knowledge. I, I want to know more. <laughs> yeah, I think we all want to know more, although I think we all also know that God clearly speaks with a Texas accent. Uh, I'm just, you know, I'm just really happy that God has finally intervened on the side of the defense. It's you know, rare, isn't it? Yeah, Usually yeah. he's pro-prosecution God. Yeah, yeah, pro-prosecution God. He's in the courtroom all the time. Yeah. I, I'm finally, I'm, I'm, I'm just happy that our side has gotten its due. All right. Well, that, I hadn't thought of it that way, but that's, that is true. All right. Hello, boys <laughs> and girls. This is Scott Henson with Just Liberty here today with our good friend Amanda Marzullo from the Texas Defender Service. And you're listening to the Reasonably Suspicious podcast for May 2018 covering Texas criminal justice policy and politics. On today's show, fewer DWI cases are being prosecuted, but not as few as the number of defendants from the Twin Peaks Biker Massacre, whose cases have been dismissed at amazingly high numbers lately. Mandy, what are you looking forward to talking about on the podcast today? Uh, the DUI numbers. I think it's an important set of questions that we've got to think about. All right. Me too. I am looking forward to that. Meanwhile, First Assistant Michael Jarrett at the McLennan County DA's office has made misfires the hallmarks of his career. First, by shooting off a pistol in the DA's offices. Then, as lead attorney on the team that couldn't shoot straight, prosecuting the Twin Peaks Biker Massacre cases, where a visiting judge called the office's behavior shameful and misleading. He's now abandoning ship after DA Abel Renya lost his primary election, and it's unclear whether any of the Twin Peaks cases will ultimately result in convictions. In fact, just before we sat down to record this, the U.S. Attorney in San Antonio announced they'd convicted the state's top two Pandito leaders of racketeering charges, including allegations of murder, but none of them related to the Twin Peaks fiasco. So, Mandy, talk to me about the legacy of this prosecutorial misadventure in Waco and what Abel Reina did wrong. Well, I think on the part of Jarrett and Abel Reina, they... They engaged in some overzealous prosecution decisions here. One of some of the interesting things is that we know that the feds were at the scene of the crime 
with the Twin Peaks case. That was one reason why so many people were killed and that there was such a quick response from law enforcement. Right. All sorts of agencies were there, DPS and lots of local agencies, and, and, and there were undercover officers from multiple agencies, and there and were all sorts of law enforcement and, around that place. And, and federal law enforcement, I, right. I believe. It wasn't right. just at the state level, yet there's no nexus between the federal charges that are brought and that incident, which means that... You know, the feds didn't think that there was a connection to like the head of the organization involved. I'm not sure it's that they didn't think there was a connection. What I think okay. is they looked at the mess in Waco and said, we don't want any part of that. <laughs> okay. Oh, my God. What are you doing? You've just messed that completely up. No, thanks. We'll convict him on something else. Thank you very much. You just, you, you have that, Abel Renya. You're, you, you just I, enjoy that mess you've created. The, well, you know, if, if nothing else, there are a number of people who were dead at, at the result of this incident. In oh my fact, gosh, most, yes. It was nine dead and 20 injured. If they could make, if they could charge someone with the death of nine people, I believe that they would have done it. Right. I think the ballistics report said that four were killed by law enforcement. You know, so it's a rough situation, you know, but the fact that they've rounded up 177 people. That's right. They, 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 however many were killed, many of the people who were killed were, in fact, the perpetrators. But beyond that, 177 is an insane number. Um, they ended up prosecuting in the 150s. Now they've dismissed almost all of those, and and actually they, all of them of the original charges were dismissed. They, they had had been charged with uh, first degree felonies, everybody, and they've recharged about twenty four cases with a variety of of offenses, and we'll see if those are more realistic. Um, it was a crazy number, though. I'd originally put the over under at how many convictions we would see from this at one and a half. And when I saw the the Marshall Project headline that two people from the banditos related to the Twin Peaks massacre were convicted, I thought, oh, well, it's I, I got over. It turned out they didn't touch the Twin Peaks yeah. stuff in those cases. The, there, there may be a connection in the press, but there's not a connection in those cases. The feds steered a very wide berth around <laughs> anything having to do with that mess. I do think Michael Jarrett shooting the gun off in the office is is really sort of a, a metaphor for the whole Abel Renya, uh, <laughs> you know, tenure. And it wasn't just this this case where he was engaging in overreach. They had a reputation of demanding extreme plea bargains in penny ante cases, including DWI and other misdemeanors, and making people sit in jail if they couldn't come to an agreement or accept the most draconian sentence possible. And uh, so their courts were getting very backed up and the jail was full and they were starting to have to look for more places for, for inmates be all and the, the County commissioner's courts having to fork over more money all because Abel Renya won't go into plea bargains. And this is, so this is not just the, the twin peaks where he's overcharging and, and going for the max and refusing to to look more realistically at the individual cases, this is kind of what he's done across the board 
if you talk to the local defense bar throughout his his tenure he's had two terms now and so we've gotten to have a pretty good sense of what he's about and and what he's done and that's right and this yeah. is not just the twin peaks case yeah and you know prosecutors they i understand why they need to bring you know fire and brimstone into the courtroom right that they're proving their case and they need to be outraged but when it comes to a charging decision, you want that to be a dispassionate, objective decision because you're, you know, you're infringing someone's liberty. Bringing charges alone has a huge impact on someone's life. That's right. And you want prosecutors to be judicious in the application of that. And it doesn't seem like that's the case in their office is that they're taking that responsibility seriously. Right. Well, that's why I say the firing off of the gun yeah. is sort of the symbol <laughs> of the culture, you know? <laughs> yeah, that word. I mean, just, you know, whatever we can get, let's go for the max. And, and, and anyway. And but, then he didn't know what he was doing, right? It was sort of right. like he was looking at someone else's Glock and didn't know that he was firing it off. <laughs> that's right. So that the, the incompetence layered <laughs> on top of the arrogance is is, is a, a big part of the piece problem. Of it. All right. Next up, Scott sits down with a national advocate from the American Conservative Union Foundation to talk about why the Texas GOP should include drug policy reform in its state party campaign platform. But first, because Just Liberty owns the audio and it's really pretty fun and catchy, let's listen to the jingle Scott's using to promote the new campaign. Justice is blind, her hands are full, holding a sword and scales. She has no time for politics, that's why her foes prevail. Today, justice is threatened beyond reasonable doubt. So why not help an old blind lady out? Justice needs a platform, justice needs a platform. Free da dee dee do dee dum Justice needs a platform. Justice needs a platform. Free Just Liberty's campaign to install criminal justice reform planks into both state political parties' platforms comes to a head next month as Republicans hold their state convention in San Antonio and the Democrats meet in Fort Worth. Mandy and I will take a month off from our regular reasonably suspicious show so Mandy can get her new condo together. And Just Liberty can focus on bringing you special campaign-related coverage at both of these venues. To prepare for the GOP convention podcast, I sat down recently with David Safavian of the American Conservative Union Foundation to talk to him about why conservatives in the Texas GOP should support a platform plank to reduce penalty for user-level drug possession. Let's listen to what he has to say. Okay, finally, let's talk about drugs and drug policy. Texas has seen declining crime in the past few years, in the past few decades, really two decades. Um, we've seen pretty consistently declining crime, declining new cases filed across the board. And the only new expanded source of new cases, increased cases, has been drug possession. So this is really the only growth sector remaining in the criminal justice field in Texas. Everything else is declining pretty radically. Talk to us about whether we should make low-level drug possession a felony, whether that should be an offense someone goes to prison for. And in Texas, the, one of the proposals has been, if we reduced from felony to a misdemeanor, 
we would be able to use some of the savings to pay for treatment for additional types of services and monitoring that might actually address the addiction instead of simply locking them up. Talk to us about, again, the conservative viewpoint on what should we do with those with that drug policy? Why, why is it being a felony a problem? Well, <clears throat> one of the things that we as conservatives really push for when we deal with government is looking at the results that the government delivers or lack thereof. And if you consider how um, punishing low-level, nonviolent drug offenders with a felony, what result that delivers it is a mark on their record that they can never erase, which hurts their long-term ability to get employed, to go to college, to earn a living, and to raise a family. A felony conviction for anything, no matter what anybody really thinks, is an, is an economic death penalty. Right. It makes it nearly impossible to get hired. Uh, there are about 43,000 different regulations that bar felons from uh, engaging in different activities, commercial, business, employment, education. And why we would do permanent harm to a person who has been convicted of a nonviolent, low-level drug offend- offense makes no sense to me, number one. Number two the cost of incarcerating these people for such a long period of time, not to mention the lost revenue, the increased um, governmental assistance that will be required because they can't find work afterwards, um, those costs are enormous. And you and I and the taxpayers of Texas will all have to shoulder those. For what result? The result is that low-level drug offenders go into prison, they come out of prison. If they have an addiction issue, they are untreated and, and you know, when you put a nonviolent offender in with an, a violent offender, who is going to come out looking more like the other? We are putting nonviolent people into prisons, making them more likely to become more serious, hardened criminals, which costs the system even more. I think that's a long-winded way of saying we're not getting a whole hell of a lot for our money when we arrest and incarcerate for long periods of time a low-level drug offense. All right. Well, thank you, David, so much for chatting with me. Thank you. Next up, a segment we call Suspicious Mysteries, in which we tackle questions to which there are no definitive answers. In recent years, far fewer Texans have been arrested for alcohol-related crimes than in years past. According to DPS arrest statistics, the number of adults arrested for DWI declined by more than a third between 2010 and 2016, and arrests for drunkenness declined by more than a half. So Scott, you first reported on this until now unreported trend on your blog, Grits for Breakfast. So what do you think is causing it? Well, as indicated by the title of this segment, we don't really know what's causing it. It's kind of a crazy thing. Because DWI enforcement remains very popular. Um, We've seen district attorneys Mm -hmm. be unelected because they didn't enforce DWI strongly enough. So it's really surprising that you would see these numbers go down by a third over this seven-year period. Now, we do have a few possibilities, a few potential explanations. For starters, we know that the number of traffic tickets went down by about a third total statewide among all agencies. No one really knows why. 
Mm-hmm. But there has been a reduction in traffic force enforcement overall, and it could be that this is just a part of that reduction in traffic enforcement that maybe occurred for reasons that don't have anything to do with DWI. On the other hand, among other possible explanations, this is a period when the Department of Public Safety shifted hundreds and hundreds of troopers, massive numbers of troopers, down to the, the border. Mm-hmm. And all of a sudden, these guys are standing along the river, staring across the water with binoculars instead of driving around looking for drunks. Mm-hmm. And while it's amazing to imagine that them making that change in priorities would result in a one-third statewide reduction in DWIs, it probably is a contributing factor that you know that shift in deployment patterns Cause this. We, we, we've also heard judges and district attorneys talk about how the driver responsibility surcharge may be causing some of this, that people are allowing DWIs to plead down to reckless driving or to uh, blocking, blocking like the roadway highway. or something that doesn't get a surcharge because they know that people can't pay these surcharges. But, Once but, they're on. But this is the arresting charge. So that would be, you know, discretion on the part that's of, true. That was the of arrest. law enforcement. So, that, so that's true. So that wouldn't explain that. But, but it could be. I mean, it could still be part of what the average law enforcement officer is thinking of at the time of an arrest. It's they make decisions as well. They're implementing policy, whether they think of themselves in that light or not. That's right. But it, But we don't really know. And it's kind of a crazy moment if it turns out to be that the dps redeployment is the reason that actually is something that could be a political issue in the governor's race this fall quite frankly i I really i really think that it's one thing for people to think huh that dps deployment is a politicized thing i'm not sure i support that it's another to say okay it's a politicized deployment and as a result you have less dwi enforcement in your community I think that actually could be something that that has political consequences. But, you know, can we prove at the moment that that's the source? No. We just know that there's been this amazingly radical reduction. Mm -hmm. The reduction in drunkenness makes you think, well, maybe it's just something related to alcohol generally. Maybe alcohol's falling out of fashion and you're not getting, you know, as many drunken public incidents as you used to. Maybe Uber and Lyft are causing some of that. People are taking, you know, ride shares instead of driving home drunk. We can't really know from the information we have. It would be interesting also to look at how geography is playing a role in this is there clustering and you know also what is the relationship between the decline in dwis and mortality rates has that changed actually i can't i can answer the latter but not the former Mm -hmm. as far as mortality rates fatal accidents had been going down very very slightly right before the drop began they have begun going back up very, very slightly, but the population increase has been greater, so the rate has continued to go down. Interesting. So we have, we're have we not seeing the rate of fatal DWI accidents going up in response to this. You have seen a slight increase in the overall total number, but when you add in the proportionality for uh, population, it 
isn't a thing. And so it, it's hard to tell. We, we don't have enough information from the top line statewide data. I think it's a great observation. You would need some geographic data and to understand better where this is clustered. Maybe or, to, or even if there is clustering. Or if, if there it is, isn't. That's right. And, you know, what's happening underneath all of this. Although, although it's kind of interesting that the mortality rate hasn't increased under this that does kind of call to question what's the point yeah <laughs> right exactly why are we incarcerating people why are we putting them through overly punitive surcharges for their driver's license if at the end of the day it's not making our roads safer that's right the uh, if you get a dwi in texas and you actually pay every fee and surcharge and probation cost and everything it's between 15 and twenty thousand dollars when you're done yeah, it's that. a it's a big chunk. So, you know, the, what the thing I mentioned on the blog is that what's fascinating is that no one's really noticed that we have <laughs> all this, this this many fewer DWIs. The only people that seem to care at all are probation directors because they get fewer people on probation and the criminal defense lawyers because DWI is one of the few places where people actually hire attorneys. <laughs> and other than that, I think. Everyone else just looked up and said, oh, no big deal. Don't really care. That didn't really matter, which is fascinating in and of itself. Yeah. Why are we doing it if we can have DWIs decline by a third and it didn't really affect safety at all? Yeah. It's fascinating. Exactly. And even with all the fees that are collected, you know, it's hard to tell whether at the end of the day the state is even generating money from it. Right? That, because it costs money to incarcerate someone. It costs money to arrest someone and have people out on patrol. So there are a lot of questions here about whether this is sound policy. Next up, our segment, Death in Texas, discussing the most pressing issues involving capital punishment and the death penalty in the Lone Star State. This month, our friend Lauren McGahey from the Dallas Morning News has a terrific new article on forensic hypnosis, a story spurred by a case out of Farmer's Branch called Ex Parte Flores, which we discussed on the podcast in November 2017. In that case, a witness who originally told police a thin, long-haired white man committed the offense changed her story to accuse Mr. Flores, a portly, short-haired Latina man, after she underwent hypnosis conducted by the Farmer's Branch Police Department. At one time, hundreds of police officers in Texas were trained to do hypnosis, but today only a couple of dozen are licensed to do so, most of them at Texas DPS and the Harris County Sheriff's Office. So Mandy, should hypnotically influenced testimony be admitted as evidence in criminal trials, in Mr. Flores' case, seeking the death penalty? Uh, no. Absolutely not. I think that's a safe thing to say. There are so many questions about the reliability of hypnotically induced testimony about its reliability that it really shouldn't be admitted into evidence. Um, we, the controlling case on this um, is a case called Zany. Or Zanny. We're not really sure which how to pronounce it. Let's go with Zany because I think that actually is more appropriate in this case. You know, as in it's Zany to use hypnosis or tarot card reading or palm <laughs> reading or 
tea leaf reading in criminal trials. So let's go with yeah, zany. zany. All right. Yeah. So in the in the zany decision, you know, the first several pages consist of the court sort of recounting all of the problems with forensically induced testimony before they say it's admissible, and it it's. It's actually slightly terrifying when you think of it as a piece of judicial reasoning that they acknowledge that someone who's under hypnosis is unusually susceptible to suggestion, that they are more likely to try to react positively to suggestions on the part of the person who's hypnotizing them, that they don't feel as though they're under someone's control, but they in fact are. And everything that we also know about recall, an individual recall, and that we ourselves, like memories can be implanted in in your mind. And so th- from that, it really, at the end of the day, hypnosis probably is making s- someone's testimony less reliable rather than more reliable. Right. A uh, researcher on eyewitness testimony, Elizabeth Loftus, has found that memories can be implanted or altered via hypnosis. And of course, making someone more susceptible is really the basis of hypnosis. So this shouldn't be a big shock. It should be mentioned that the farmer's branch detective didn't even follow the zany guidance by the court. Even there, there were there, there were several requirements. You must do this. You must do that. That weren't followed. It was the first time that detective had ever done it. <laughs> um, but one of the crazy things is this is something that's going out of fashion on its own without the courts doing anything. Mm -hmm. People are not willing to put their name behind this for the most part. At one point in time in the late eighties, there were actually hundreds of Texas law enforcement officers who were licensed by what was in the Texas commission on law enforcement standards and education. Now the Texas commission on law enforcement to be certified as a forensic hypnotist and to use this in court as recently as 1999, There were 152 forensic hypnotists statewide. Mm -hmm. Today, there are about two dozen, and almost all of them are at only two agencies. They are at Texas Department of Public Safety. Mm -hmm. Um, Most of them in the Texas Rangers, as I understand it. Okay. And um, in the Harris County Sheriff's Office. Well, well, those those aren't agencies that handle high-profile cases, so I don't understand why anyone would have a problem with that. Why anyone would care. Yeah, I mean, it's only the Texas Rangers. That's right. So... This is something that law enforcement has, for the most part, already moved away from. And when you look at the zany factors and the the zany opinion, there's a a moment where they say that the proponents of forensic hypnosis support the videotape theory of memory, where your memories are like videotapes and you have somehow suppressed them into your subconscious and... Mm the hypnosis is merely digging into your subconscious to get these videotape-like memories. Well, even at the time that that opinion was written, we knew that that was bogus. Mm -hmm. And today, scientists know 100% that that is false. The use of fMRIs to track brain patterns Mm -hmm. and brain circuitry has shown that memories are recreated every single time you draw them back up. And that's why they can change and alter over time is that they're being recreated each time. And that's why they can be changed or altered when you're under this susceptible state. It's it's pretty phenomenal at the end of the day. I mean, it makes you wonder about the court and its reasoning on this, but... 
Well, and, and, you know, I've said for years that the Court of Criminal Appeals has been dominated by the government always wins faction. And certainly in 2004, when they last considered this, that was more the case than it is even so today. Mm-hmm. And the fact is that we've had a bunch of prosecutors, or a bunch, I should say a bunch of judges on this <laughs> Really? Prosecution? <laughs> I don't know why anyone would confuse them. That's right. We have had a bunch of judges on the Court of Criminal Appeals for a very long time now who essentially side with the government, with the prosecution, no matter what the situation. And... That's how I sort of view this is that, well, why did they allow hypnosis in? Because the government wanted it in. Mm-hmm. And there really doesn't have to be much more of a reason than that. Finally, just because I'm really liking how it turned out, and like Mandy said, we own the audio, let's play one more tune for you. <laughs> this is Stop the Train, a promotional jingle Just Liberty is using to brand and popularize our campaign to reduce incarceration and close more prisons in Texas. I wrote the lyrics, that's Malford Milligan on vocals, and Donnie Wynn and Gabe Rhodes did an amazing job on the drums and guitar, respectively. I think it's pretty catchy. By next spring, I hope most Texans, and certainly most Texas legislators, think about closing prisons every time they hear the chorus. The incarceration train keeps rolling, rolling down the line. It's filled with pain and sorrow, but the driver is doing just fine. Just fine. And the passengers in cargo, when they get to the end of the line, gonna learn this train window where Lord and the ticket price show is high. Stop the train. 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 I'm getting off. And the doors of the train will open And the platform people will flood And a voice rang from heaven saying Your debt was paid with blood Stop the train 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 I'm getting on Stop the train 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 I'm getting on If you'd like to add this song to your own playlist, go right now to JustLiberty.org. From our homepage, you can send a message to the Texas Department of Criminal Justice asking them to include prison closures in their legislative appropriations request. You can download the song from the thank you page. Stop the train, I'm getting off. And now it's time for our rapid fire segment, The Last Hurrah. Mandy, are you ready? The question is, are you ready? You get the first one, Scott. All right. The most successful fake news ads promoted on Facebook by Russian troll farms during the 2016 election turned out to be the Blue Lives Matter post intended to inflame white Americans against the Black Lives Matter movement, according to the Daily Beast. What does it say about Americans that this worked? Uh, oh my gosh, this is just heart-wrenching. <laughs> and, and, and frankly, of course it worked. <laughs> of course it worked. Oh my God. It this this is a complete embarrassment. It is it's the the idea that this was being ginned up by America's enemies is just sad and disquieting. It should also be mentioned, by the way, that the same Russian troll farms, it turns out, were the ones generating all the controversy over Jade Helm, 
that <laughs> remember when our governor actually <laughs> ordered the Texas State Guard to monitor the U.S. military because they might be seeking to imprison. Yes. You know, average Texans. And, well, it turns out that was all also from a Russian troll farm. It's just embarrassing and awful. And everyone should just feel terrible that this is where we are right now. Mm -hmm. (laughs) (laughs) Fake news. (laughs) Mandy, we're going to give you one of the easy ones. In San Antonio, both the Republican and Democratic district attorney candidates have endorsed allowing a local needle exchange program to go forward. And in 2015, a bill allowing charities to operate needle exchanges passed in the Republican-led Texas House with bipartisan support. So, what will it take to get Lieutenant Governor Dan Patrick and Governor Abbott on board with other Republican leaders endorsing harm reduction responses to the overdose crisis? Okay, so at the outset, I'm going to say that I don't think that this bipartisan endorsement in San Antonio means too much because it's San Antonio, which is for those of... Our listeners who are from outside the Lone Star State, that is the most Democratic pocket that our state has. And so you're going to see more of a left-leaning bet towards criminal justice out of San Antonio. But I think in terms of what it's going to take to pass, it's going to be a huge investment from the Republican establishment. So I would expect maybe the evangelical movement or members of the Liberty Caucus who have, you know, endorsed this policy in the House to to stand up and say that this is a priority for them. But it's going to need be some sort of outreach to the like of and Governor Abbott to say that this is both consistent with, you know, the Republican thinking about limited government and that it's, you know, an ethical thing to be doing. That's right. It has to be messengers they support. Exactly. Finally, fewer Texans are under control of the government than at any time in recent memory. The Lone Star State's, quote, subjugation rate, which Scott has defined on his blog as the total number of people supervised in prison, jail, on probation, and on parole compared to the adult population, has declined from 1 in 22 adults back in 2008 to 1 in 41 in 2018. So Scott, Texas's population has grown, but not that much. What explains this unexpected and underacknowledged upsurge in freedom? Well, this is actually an amazing number and an amazing change. The national average is one in 38 people in prison, jail, probation, and parole. So Texas is now below. Yay! The number that's really changed is probation. And the, there's, the main reason that it's changed is the increase in the property theft thresholds, the thresholds at which you get charged with a higher offense, a felony or whatever the higher offense is, in 2015. We had understood that this would reduce the number of people who went to prison because fewer people would be charged with a felony. They're now charged with a misdemeanor. The thing that no one understood and that this data actually reveals is that when all those people shifted to a misdemeanor, misdemeanor probation is typically only six months long, and the felony probation is two two to ten years. So the number of people on probation has plummeted, and that's the reason for the far, far lower number. Excellent. All right, we're out of time, but we'll try and do better the next time. Until then, I'm Scott Henson with Just Liberty. And I'm Amanda Marzullo from the Texas Defender Service. Goodbye, and thanks for listening. We'll be back in July with another edition of the Reasonably Suspicious Podcast. And next month, look for Just Liberty's podcast coverage aimed at the Republican Democratic State Political Conventions. I'm excited about that. 
Till then, keep fighting for criminal justice reform. It's the only way it's going to happen.